All right, we're going to start today with the 102nd Psalm. A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion, for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones, and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he shouted my days, he shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my years. Your years are throughout generations, all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloth you will change them and they, sh they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the Psalms. Thank you for the words of comfort which they give us and the, the glory that they reveal in you. Thank you for these beautiful words and thank you for your word in general, all of the majesty which is revealed in it. And Lord, help each one of us to seek you all the days of our life and to study your word and to cherish it and to hold it in our hearts. And I would ask that you would bless each person here with something special in their uh, their uh, walk today. Maybe they'll hear something that will uh, touch them or impress them. And may the words that I speak to the people here be pleasing to you. And we have a, a lady that uh, has come to sing to us today. And I ask that you bless her and uh, just help her to be at peace and uh, in calm and ease as she sings to us. And Lord, we just want to give you the glory, the praise, and the honor that you're due for every good blessing that you give us. Just wonderful things that come from your open hand of grace that we do not deserve. Lord, all glory, all honor, and all majesty. These are yours alone. And in your precious Son's name, Jesus, we make this prayer and this praise. Amen. All right, let's see. Uh, just a few announcements. Um, I, I think I might have said this last week, and I can't remember. Maybe I uh, need to say it. Uh, I signed a contract on a building, and uh, there was enough wrong with it where I've asked for an extension of the contract for two weeks, and I need to give them an answer by this Thursday as to whether we're going to proceed with it or not. And uh, I'm hoping to hear from a contractor tomorrow who went in and looked at the building, what he recommends, 
And uh, if so, then it'll probably be a month or two of work and, you know, fixing things up and cleaning and all that. And then from there, we would be able to move into a building. And if not, then we'll just keep meeting out here. But uh, that's where we're at on that. And um, baptism, mention it every week. If anybody here wants to be baptized at any time, got the water right behind me. And I've done it on the coldest days of the year, and I've done it in the summer. So uh, anytime you want to do that, I always keep uh, a bathing suit handy, or I'll just leave my jeans on if you want to photo with me in some wet jeans, whatever. But um, uh, today is our 60th Genesis sermon, and uh, we're in Genesis 27, so it's going to be a while before we get out of Genesis. But as I try to say week after week, Kelly has been here through all 60 minus one, and she did watch that one on YouTube. And uh, so I always try to recognize her for that. And we've got other people that come so regularly, I'm going to have to start recognizing them as well. But uh, I like to pick on Kelly because she's such a glutton for punishment. But um, anyway, 60th Genesis sermon today. And um, uh, I guess what we'll do, we'll go ahead and have a New Testament reading. Today's sermon isn't very long. And uh, then after that, we got somebody special here to, uh, to uh, sing a song for us before we get into the sermon. I, and I think that's all of the announcements anyway. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to tell you all. And, and what's that? Oh, yes. You know what? There's a few of us here that went to school together. And um, you may or may not know this, but uh, a girl that we went to school with passed away two days ago at three in the morning. And um, her name was Tinsley. And she loved the Lord Jesus. And uh, she, she really suffered over the past couple years. One type of cancer turned into another and another. And she literally just fell to pieces. But uh, through it all, I mean, through the absolute agony of what she was suffering through, she, she kept her testimony and she was, uh, uh, you know, she was just faithful about her convictions in the Lord. And uh, uh, just, I, it, it's good to know that there are people like that out there because when we all face our times, and I'll t- talk about this just a little bit today, um, we need to understand that these things happen because the Lord has ordained them. And, uh, you know, our, our afflictions are there for a reason. So some of you might be suffering with them right now, and if so, try to see the Lord's hand in it. Like I say, I'll mention that again during the sermon. But uh, we do want to remember Tinsley, if you knew her. She was a real sweet girl. Um, all right, real quickly, a uh, New Testament reading. We'll just, like say, uh, week after week, I just read a little bit, uh, a couple passages, and I uh, give a very short analysis of it, nothing deep. But... Um, Let's see, uh, last week we did Romans eleven twenty five through 36, so we're going to start with uh, Romans 12, 1, and let me see, we'll go through, we'll go through 12, 8. We'll do just eight verses today. Um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Um, you know, it, we it are in a much more informal setting than most churches uh, but it's good to remember that the Lord wants us to live holy and pure lives. He wants us to conduct ourselves in a way that is according to the Bible. And if we're not married, that we should get married before we do certain things. And if we're, uh, you know, abusing our bodies with drugs or alcohol or something, we need to attempt our best to move away from those things. And we all struggle with past addictions. I shouldn't say all of us, but many of us do. And there are times where we'll fail, where we'll fall back into these. But the Lord is asking us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that's almost a contradiction if you think of it, because a sacrifice is something that dies. And he's asking us to be a living sacrifice, which means that we are to die daily to sin. 
we are to sacrifice the sin nature in us and uh, give that as an offering to the Lord Jesus. And he will help us in that. There's no doubt about it. He carries us through our afflictions. And uh, if we just put our faith and trust in him, he will relieve us of these things. Um, verse two, and be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Uh, we're living in a, a fallen world and it's obvious turning on the TV or just walking down the road that there's a lot of bad things that are happening. And uh, uh, the Lord asks us not to be conformed to those things, but to be transformed. And really the only way to do this, I, I, I'm just certain of this, is to know the unseen father, you need to know the seen son. And in order to know the seen son, we have one source for him. And that's this word right here. And if we don't hold fast to this word, if we don't hold fast to this, then we will not be transformed into the image of Christ. We will, be, we will remain conformed to the ways of this world. It's this which will lead us to an understanding of Jesus Christ and thus to an understanding of God the Father. So verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given to me, and Paul will admit that he was one of the greatest recipients of God's grace. He was a, a, a violent man. He uh, was there at the uh, stoning of the uh, Christian world's first martyr. He uh, uh, was scrupulous in upholding the law, and yet he had no heart for God. And God bestowed great grace on, on Paul. And uh, by doing that, he's an example to all of us. But he says, uh, I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And uh, this is probably one of my biggest problems is, you know, you get to learn the Bible and people start emailing you and asking for questions. And the next thing you know, you start thinking more highly of you than you, you should. And it's something that I typed the devotional that's coming out five days from today this morning and uh, that's one of the things that I brought up is that you can have all of the knowledge of the Bible in the world. You can have uh, studied the original languages. You could have been trained in proper theology. And there are people that are in seminaries around the world that have all of those things and they have no relationship with God at all. And all of that knowledge means nothing. It means absolutely nothing if you're not willing to take your faith and your trust and put it in Jesus Christ alone. And so that's something that we need to remember is not to think too highly of ourselves and to continuously come like with the faith like a child, come to Jesus Christ, and then move to the position every day where we are relying on his word. So we come in the morning in faith and then just throughout the day exercise what we know from the study of his word. All right, anyway, um, verse four, for we have... Um, for as we have many members in one body, I've got hand, I've got an arm, I've got legs, I've got feet, I've got a head, and I'm missing a brain. But um, I, we have all these members in the body, but all the members do not have the same function. My hand doesn't do what my foot does, and my eye doesn't do what my ear does, okay? And he says, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, Okay. I happen to be a preacher here, and some of you happen to be uh, people that give, or some of you happen to be people that, um, uh, you know, whatever you do. Maybe you're going to be a, a Bible teacher when we get a, an actual church, and you, you say, I want to teach the Bible. Or you know, whatever it is, we all have something that we are contributing to the body of Christ. And there is no one part that is more important than the other. And that's one thing that we tend to do, is we tend to take pastors and uh, missionaries, and we put them on this exalted pe pedestal, when in fact they're just as 
you know, fallen as the rest of the people in the church. And yes, there is a special honor that's given to people uh, that are in the ministry, but what they do is no greater than what anybody else does. I know a lady that's out at Grace Baptist Church, and I won't give her name, but uh, she cleans the bathrooms. And I can tell you that Grace Baptist Church, where I used to attend, has the cleanest bathrooms on the face of the earth. Male and female bathrooms, I've never seen any like it. And she literally takes pride in shining that chrome. And her job is as important, in my opinion, as the pastors who's standing up there giving the uh, sermon. Because people come in and their image of that church is based on what they see, including the bathrooms. If you go into a place with crummy, stinky bathrooms, then you think, well, that wasn't really a nice experience. Now, some churches just don't have good facilities, but if you have a facility and somebody's taking care of it, even if it's old, it's obvious that it's being taken care of. So um, I, I just, am I right about that? Is that not an honor to the Lord, what she does? And Darla here knows her very well. So uh, anyway, uh, it's just every one of us has something that we can offer to the Lord and no member in our body is more important than the other. And he's going to make a point about that. He says, um, uh, uh, I think I read that one. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy. And I, I will say this, prophecy comes in two forms. It comes in foretelling. Jeremiah the prophet foretold. Thus says the Lord, this is going to happen and then it happens. I don't believe that there's prophecy anymore. I believe that this book uh, sealed the prophetic word for all time. There is another type of prophecy, which is called forthtelling, And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm saying, this is the word of the Lord. Let me explain it to you. And it's the same uh, word. It's just that I am taking what was given by God and I am now re relaying it to you. So I don't believe in foretelling anymore. Some people do and they can disagree with me and that's fine. And we can argue over which is right. But I believe that we are forthtelling the word only in this dispensation. Um, so uh, we uh, prophesy in proportion to our faith. And then verse seven, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, and he who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who show, uh, leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And all of those are important things to do. We, you know, showing mercy to somebody is a wonderful trait. I'm not very empathetic. My wife just went through surgery a day ago. And I find it hard to show empathy. It's just not one of my gifts, where she's the most empathetic person on the face of the earth. She's a nurse. She takes care of people. If I stub my toe, I sit in bed and I cry all day, and she just comes over and tenderly takes care of me. So she has that gift that I don't have. And I wish I did because my heart grieves for her during this time that she's not feeling well, but I just don't handle it well. So all of these things are important. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and do this. Uh, he who exhorts an exhortation, he who gives with liberality. Oh, I just read that one. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I said I was going to stop at verse 9, and because um, uh, I don't want to get long-winded, and I want Brianna to get up here before she gets cold and uh, shakes while she's singing, we'll let her do that. But uh, anyway, just keep those things in mind as far as your role within the church. Whatever it is, do it to the glory and honor of the Lord. Don't do it for other people to see. You know, if you do, then there's no reward there. Jesus even said that. If you are boastful about the things you do, you've, re you've received your reward in full. But when you uh, do something, do it quietly. And don't let other people know that you, you've done it. Give your alms quietly or, or say your prayers with the door closed where your heavenly Father will hear it. And 
Other people aren't going to hear your long and boisterous prayers. Some people love to hear themselves pray out loud to other, in front of other people. And the Lord doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. And when we do things for other people, to do it without looking for a claim for ourselves. Anyway, we'll go ahead and finish with that. And then I'm going to ask Brianna to come up here and she's got a song to sing. And after that, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon. Lost or saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every sound of your great name the enemy he has to live at the sound of your great name Jesus worthy is the lamb that was slain for us son of
to thank Brianna for doing that today. I so much appreciate you coming by and singing for us and uh, you're welcome to do that anytime in the future. Please feel feel free to do that. And uh, today we're going to go through Genesis chapter 27 verses 1 through 20. All right, it's called a blessing in the face of death. But before we get into that, as always, I've got this day in history. Today is 3 February and uh, the first thing that we have is in 1690 on this day, the first paper money in America was issued by the Massachusetts colony and the currency was used to pay soldiers that were fighting in the war against Quebec. So two things, I had no idea that we were ever in a war uh, against Quebec and uh, this goes all the way back to 1690 we had paper money issued in America. So just a couple of points that I had no idea about, kind of an interesting thing. Um, 1783, Spain recognized the independence of the United States. And uh, if you know history in this regard, Spain and England were not always uh, allies. And um, kind of like uh, England and France, the French helped us during the World uh, or the uh, Revolutionary War. But uh, after the uh, war, Spain took the uh, initiative to uh, recognize the United States as a sovereign country. And uh, 1809, the territory of Illinois was created. And just thinking about that, you know, how much has gone on in Illinois over the years. And uh, it, it has never been a place, and I don't mean to say anything wrong about the people in Illinois, because uh, I've got some very, very good friends that live there. There's lots of strong Christians there. But uh, it's always been kind of this place that's um, run by its own set of rules. And, uh, you know, we had the, uh, uh, you know, the 20s, the Prohibition area, and all of the, the guys that, uh, you know, handled things out of Illinois. And then, of course, we have, um, uh, you know, what's going on today with the, uh, w the uh, death rate that is going on, at, particularly in Chicago. It's, I mean, it's gangster land. And um, their death rate in Chicago exceeds that of Afghanistan. And, you know, here we're worried about um, our soldiers going overseas and fighting for this country and dying. And uh, I'm talking about the left. They're all upset about that when, in fact, the, you know, they have the strongest gun laws in the entire nation almost in uh, Chicago. And they've got the highest death rate in the nation. So it's contradictory thinking and it all stems from liberalism. It stems from a liberal attitude about our rights as U.S. citizens, about liberal attitude concerning morality, and all of these other issues. Um, but that was 1809, the territory of Illinois. Then in 1815, Switzerland established the world's first commercial cheese factory. 
And I thought this was kind of interesting because cheese goes all the way back to the biblical times. You'll read about curds and whey in the book of uh, Isaiah. And, um, uh, you know, just cheese production in general goes back thousands and thousands of years. And yet it was Switzerland in 1815 that established the first cheese factory. So um, after that, 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. Does anybody know what the 16th Amendment was for? I'll tell you. Okay. This surprises me because a lot of people don't understand the amendment process to the Constitution, but it's not only something that goes through the House and it goes through the Senate and uh, then to the President. It has to be approved by, I believe, two-thirds of the states. It has to be ratified by them. And if they don't agree to it, then it doesn't become law. And that means that two-thirds of the states in 1913 authorized power to impose and collect income taxes which I, I can't imagine anybody saying, yeah, I'm going to allow the government to make decisions about where my money is going to go. And we've seen the result of that in the, the recent years. Um, then we come uh, one more. In 1945, Russia agreed to enter World War II against Japan. And if you uh, notice the year 1945, the war was all but over. Japan was already defeated. All they were waiting to do was basically... Uh, sign away their uh, rights as a sovereign nation if necessary or whatever the uh, uh, agreement that they came to with the United States would be. And uh, Russia saw that. And what did they do? They moved in and they declared war on Japan. And by doing that, they were able to seize the Karelian Islands, which are in the very north of Japan. And to this day, nobody disputes Russia's right to the Karelian Islands, even though it was when the war was almost over, and that's just the spoils of war. Other than Japan that wants them back, they're not getting them back. And the reason why I bring this up is because we have another nation on Earth, and I bring them up week after week, is they won in battle the Sinai Peninsula, they won the Gaza Strip, and they won the West Bank. They won it legitimately in battle. They were gracious enough to give the... Uh, Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt as an offering of peace so that they could come together. But uh, Gaza and the West Bank belonged to the Jews. They won them legally in battle. And other than them, nobody finds any fault with a nation winning in battle a uh, piece of land and keeping it. That's the spoils of war, with the exception of Israel. And so Israel's being having their hand forced to give these lands up. They walked away from Gaza in 2008. And the United Nations just this week, once again, um, uh, condemned Israel for occupying the West Bank, which they won legitimately in war. It makes absolutely no sense, but this is the way of the world. And it's what the Bible predicted would happen thousands and thousands of years ago, that Israel would come to this point in history and that they would become the focus of all of the nations on earth. Their attention would be focused on Israel, and it's coming about exactly as the Bible predicted. So, as always, I ask you to pray for Israel, to remember that it is a double standard what is happening against them. And uh, if you disagree with me, I, I just, I cannot help you. You need to pick up your Bible, you need to read your Bible, and you need to understand what God wants for them, not what we want as a collective group of people on earth for the people of Israel. They're a sovereign nation, and they are entitled to what they've earned. Anyway, um, enough of that for today. We're going to go ahead and read the text. And as I said, today's uh, text is Genesis 27, verses 1 through 20. It's a lot of verses, but we'll get through them rather quickly. 
and uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. I came to uh, this particular set of verses with my own presuppositions, and I found out that I was wrong. And uh, I will tell you that yesterday I was emailing the mother of an old girlfriend who I, uh, I have all the respect in the world for her. She is a great lady. She's an author. She's highly intelligent. She loves the Lord and she loves the Bible. And she told me yesterday when I posted that we would be going over these verses, she says uh, she saw what Rebecca and Jacob did is just wrong. And she says, I just, I am just, the, the word she used, I'm, mis, I'm not thinking of the word right now, but she was like, I think what they did was wrong and it's kind of appalling basically. And I said, you need to watch the sermon because I bet you will come to a different conclusion when we're done. And uh, as I read these 20 verses, think on it. And then we'll go through them and we'll see if you have a different conclusion when we're done. Here we go. Genesis 27, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah said, uh, spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from, the, from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing." But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them near to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were in her house, in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord, your God brought it to me. Like I said, uh, uh, my old girlfriend's mother had a problem with this particular uh, issue that happened here. And uh, I looked at it completely differently than uh, I did after doing the sermon, after studying the Hebrew and, uh, uh, you know, talking to, Lord, talking to the Lord as I do when I uh, do these sermons. I'm always saying, Lord, I know there's something here that you want us to see and I'm not seeing it. And uh, uh, eventually I came to the conclusion that I've come to and I hope that you will appreciate what I believe the Lord has in here for us. If you've ever seen a uh, book of the stories of the Bible, you might have seen a picture of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac. You know, sometimes they have those little pictographs or whatever in the sides of the Bibles or in the back, or you might have uh, uh, had a, a, a book of Bible stories in illustration. 
and invariably, if you have seen one of these, you'll see an old man in bed with a very long white beard and a boy, you know, a young boy there at his side, and he's attempting to imitate his older, hairier brother. And I have to tell you how wrong that picture is, and you're going to see why in a very short while. Although the pictures of the Bible and the stories that are in there are fun and they're interesting to look at, they're often as wrong as they are right. Now, here's a question for you. Have you ever seen one of these pictures of the Israelites walking around Jericho with the ark before they destroyed Jericho? If you have, you've seen the big congregation of the Israelites. They're all, uh, you know, in uh, mass going around the walls of Jericho. And you see the priests, and you see some of the priests are blowing their trumpets, and some of the priests are carrying the ark. They have the poles on their shoulder, and the ark, you see, with the gold on top of it. And then on top of that, you see the little cherubim which are on top of the uh, mercy seat as they're carrying it around. Now, my question to you is, what is wrong with that picture? Anybody know? Well, no, the congregation was there. Some led and some were behind. That's good observation, but uh, they were there. Actually, what's wrong with that picture is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 4. Let me read it to you. When the camp prepares to journey... Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. So here you have the uh, tabernacle. You've got the uh, veil, which is in front of the ark. That veil is put over the ark itself. So the cherubim are, you know, there's cherubim woven onto the veil. Well, they're also placed on top of the cherubim that are on top of the ark. And then they take badger skins, or some versions will say the skins of uh, manatees or uh, porpoises. The word is dugong in Hebrew. It's probably porpoises. It's not badger skins. But whatever it is, um, they were to put those on top. And then they were to take a veil of blue and put it over that. The ark was never to be seen by anyone except the high priest of Israel, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he went in, he was to take incense with him. And what that would do is that would obscure his vision of the ark because he wasn't even supposed to be looking that at the ark himself. If it was moved, only the priests could look at it and only for the purpose of covering it. Details like these help us to mentally keep the biblical narrative in a proper focus and to sharpen our awareness of what is really going on in the Bible. So I would ask that our mental images of the Bible be based on the truth that is contained there. Only then can we understand the reality of what God is conveying to us in his word, such as his immense holiness, because the Ark of the Covenant prefigures the person of Jesus Christ. And unless you are saved by the blood of Christ, when you face him, you are going to be utterly condemned. And that's the pictures that the Bible is trying to give us of these things. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Job, from chapter 12. It says, with him, meaning God, are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. If we see deception in the world, we may ask why God allows it to happen. In the case of Jacob and Esau, the story that I just read you, it came about to meet God's purposes, which were spoken of even before their birth. So let us understand that both the deceived and the deceiver are his. And in the end, his plans and his purposes are going to come to pass exactly as they should. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, our first thought for the day is a preparation 
for a blessing. Verse 1, now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Now we have to do some backdating here to know when this most likely happened and how old Isaac is and thus how old Jacob and Esau are. And the only way we can do this is go all the way to the life of Joseph when he went down to Egypt many, many years later. When Joseph went to Egypt, he stood before Pharaoh at the age of 30. Okay, that means that Jacob, his father, came down to Egypt when he was about 39 years old. Okay, and uh, I'm sorry, that was when Joseph was 39 years old. And that means at that time, Jacob, his father, was 139, I'm sorry, 130 years old. Okay, so when Joseph was born, the one that stood before Pharaoh, Jacob was about 91 years old. And that was after he had spent 14 years up in Padan Maram. If you know that, we're going to go through that in a few more sermons. He goes up there to get a wife, and he ends up actually getting two wives and two concubines. All right, that means by doing this backdating that Jacob and Esau are 77 years old at this time. They're not young boys. They're old men. And that makes Isaac 136 years old at this time. Therefore, this is about the year 2245 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world, and it is a full 61 years after Abraham's death. It's also 37 years since the very last thing that we read last week, which was that Esau got married when he was 40 years old and he married two wives. The ages of these people are significant for several reasons. First, as I said, we've got a 37-year gap in the narrative. God is only including things that are relevant to the story and that are setting up pictures for us to see what he is going to do in future history. All right, we know that Isaac's eyes are now dim. This is the second thing that's important. He's 136 years old and his eyes are dim, and yet he is going to live, according to the Bible, until he is 180 years old. That means over 40 years, almost 44 more years, he's going to be alive with these bad eyes. Another important point is that even though he is 77 years old, Jacob is not yet married. As I said, his younger bro- or his older brother Esau got married. They're the same age, but he came out first. He got married 37 years earlier at the age of 40. And yet Jacob still hasn't married at 77 years of age. Another thing to think about is what happens here is not something between a couple of young children or teenagers and their young mother, but between two well-aged men and a mother who is even older than they are. If she was 15 years old when she got married, and that's just speculation, I'm taking the youngest I could imagine her getting married, uh, she uh, she then waited after that 20 years to have her children, according to the Bible, then she has to be, at this time, at least... 112 years old, maybe older. This was not a fight between two young teenagers, which was prompted by a young and impulsive mother by any stretch of the imagination. Isaac is very old and his eyes are not working well, and so he calls for Esau, his firstborn. It's important to note that what's going to occur would not have occurred if Isaac's eyes were not dim. And therefore, behind the scenes, we see God's hand working, even in his faulty eyesight. When Moses died, okay, he was, uh, it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. He 
Here's what it says. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, and his natural vig- nor his natural vigor diminished. God is in control of every single aspect of our life, even our illnesses. And we talked about that a few minutes ago with the death of our friend recently. Some of us have illnesses that are going to end in death, maybe. Some of us have illnesses that are going to make us sick or, or will have to stop a certain type of work that we're doing and get a different job because of that. And we need to understand that those things are ordained by God. Nothing happens apart from his sovereign will. And uh, I heard a preacher say one time, it's very hard to praise the Lord when you're throwing up over a toilet. And that's true. But we need to understand that even though we are sick or we're having an affliction, God has ordained it and we need to praise him through that because his will is being worked out in our life for our good and for his glory, even if our good is painful in the process. Verse two, then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, Isaac is stuck in this bed with his bad eyes and he probably felt as if his life is coming to a close. And because of this, He wants to put his house in order, even though his death that we know is more than 40 years away. But this is something that wise people have been doing and continue to do for 4,000 years. If we are planning on being here forever, we have very mistaken plans. There's a guy named Adam Clark. I'm going to quote him now, and I'll quote him a little bit later. About this verse, he says this, He who lives not in reference to eternity lives not at all. We have no idea the last day of our death, and so we need to be preparing our lives for when we're gone. The Bible says to save for our children's children. We need to take care of our business and keep our house in order so that when we leave, we don't leave it in a mess for others to have to fix. Verse 3, Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. If you look at this verse in the right way, it is an amazingly touching thing which Isaac is doing right here. He's the patriarch of an entire camp with dozens if not hundreds of servants, plus warriors, plus their families, and much more. If you remember, Abraham had 318 fighting men plus all the other people. Isaac has more. When What Abraham possessed has been increased by Isaac, probably to the point of thousands and thousands of animals in his flocks. And yet he calls for his son Esau, who is in his 70s, almost 80 years old at this point, and he asks him to get his things together and to go out and hunt game for him. And to me, this would be just as personal as if you were to say, I'm going to fly home to see my mom because I want her to cook a meal for me this weekend. That's how personal this is. The wild game is gonna have its own particular taste And the fact that it's hunted by Esau would make it all the more endearing to him. The blessing is going to be offered. It's going to be a special blessing. And therefore, he wants what precedes it to be special as well. Verse 4, And make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, although Isaac hasn't lost his sight, I'm sorry, he has lost his sight. He hasn't lost his taste. That's important. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. And so he asks for something tasty before he is going to bestow this blessing. Some scholars look at this particular verse and they see in connection with it a uh, religious ritual where a meal is participated in or during either before or during the uh, meal you participate in a religious ritual. 
And I don't see any problem with that. I think that's a very good analysis, and it goes along with the theme of other biblical meals that come in conjunction with important events, such as the Passover, the Lord's Supper, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, which is coming in the future. All of these are occurring in conjunction with a meal, and we'll do that today with the Lord's Supper. Isaac is participating in an ancient tradition, and he's ready to bestow a blessing upon his son. Now, a lot of people will castigate him here. I read a lot of commentaries during the uh, preparation of this sermon, and a lot of the commentators castigate him for intending to bless Esau and not Jacob because of the prophecy that was given before they were born, which said that the older son is going to serve the younger son. Their claim is that Isaac either ignored this or he forgot about it. But it could be, and we don't know, the Bible doesn't say it could be that Rebecca never even told him of the prophecy. So in this sense, we don't want to rebuke him where there, no rebuke is given. And in this case, all we can do is we can see a father that simply wants to bless his firstborn son before he dies. The fact that he is unable to see is what's important to this story. And it tells us that God's intentions are being met. It's a very important precept that we need to remember. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the faith of Rebecca. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. Now, Rebekah, whether we agree with her actions or not, is going to be a very important part of what happens here and its effect on the world, even to the world that we live in today. It was to her that the word was spoken about the older serving the younger, and it is she who is close enough to the tent right now to hear Isaac say these things to his son Esau, what he intends to do. And right or wrong from our perspective, it was the Lord who directed her to be married to Isaac, who kept her from being pregnant for 19 full years, and who caused her to have twins conceive in her womb, and who molded her into every other possible way that she can be molded in order for this to come about. In other words, every single thing that has happened to Rebecca has been shaped and is leading her to the moment where her decisions will direct the outcomes. She hears Isaac's words to Esau, and so she acts, first by telling her son Jacob what she heard. This is verse 6. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make me savory food. Make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now I want you to know that there is a difference between what Isaac said and what Rebecca says. And this is hugely important. In verse 4, Jacob said to his son, I'm sorry, Isaac said to his son Esau, that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. But here it says that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. These differences are gigantic, and it isn't just her adding in something that Isaac said but wasn't recorded. And the Bible does do that from time to time. That's not what's happening here. The words for before my death are different than the words that uh, she uses before I die, even in the Hebrew. When Isaac spoke to Esau, he used the term in Hebrew, beterem, which means before in time. It would be like me saying, I'm going to 7-Eleven before I go to Publix. But what Rebecca says to Jacob, she, when she speaks to him, she use, uses the term lifne, 
which means before as in the presence of something. Lifne literally means in the face of. So she says in the presence of the Lord rather than that my soul may bless you. And I can only think based on the two things that she's saying, a different word for before, before and then saying in the presence of the Lord is that she is looking at this blessing as the messianic blessing that she knew belonged to Jacob because the Lord had told her. What I think she's saying when she uses this term lifne or before is that the promise was to come to Jacob not before Isaac's death in time. I need to give this blessing before I die, but before Isaac's death, which is a result of the fall of mankind. I need to give this blessing because I will die. My death is in the presence or in the face of the Lord. It's a huge theological difference there. The blessing then, as Rebecca understands it, is for the reversal of the curse upon mankind. And this is a blessing that she knows must go to Jacob. What is always perceived of as evil intent by this woman on the part of uh, Rebecca here is, as I see it, an act of faith, even if it is deceptive on her part. And this follows the theme of women of faith throughout the entire Bible. We've seen some already, and we're going to continue to see them. If you remember the story of Lot's daughters, they went and they slept with their father, and everybody thinks that was a terrible thing they did, when in fact the words they used indicated that they were believed that they were bringing in the Messiah of the world. And in fact, they did, because both of their children, Ben-Ami and Moab, became ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were living in faith by taking the action that they took. And Rebecca's acting in this exact same faith by ensuring that her younger son receives the blessing that the Lord had told her about. Rahab the harlot, if you remember the story about her, we haven't gotten to it yet, but if you've read it yourself, she acted in faith by hiding the spies when they came to Jericho. And she actually lied about it. And yet the Bible commends her for it. Ruth acted in faith by moving to Israel with her mother-in-law. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, she acted in faith by accepting her role as the mother of the Messiah of the world, even though she was a virgin. Rebecca is acting in the exact same manner as these other great women who exercised their faith in God's unfolding plans for the people of the world. Verse eight, now therefore my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Rebecca is so determined in what she intends here that she uses two terms to convince her son Jacob. The first is obey and the second is command. Just imagine your own mother saying to you, I want you to listen very carefully and I want you to do exactly as I say. This is the intent and the force behind her words right now. Verse nine, go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. The question for this verse is, why would she tell Jacob to get two kids of the goats? This is a lot more than Isaac could eat in several meals. The actual reason here is that the kid of the goat apparently tastes quite a bit like a young roe or a fawn, you know, a wild deer. By taking two of them, she could take and cut out the choicest pieces from both of them and make one meal out of both of them and then add in some uh, seasoning by somebody who knew how to cook and it would be a truly deceiving meal. So Isaac is going to be deceived in more ways than one. However, there is a spiritual reason for the Bible to mention these two goats. Actually, there are several spiritual reasons. As I said last week, 
throughout the entire Bible, the number two signifies a difference, usually of things that contrast each other or that are at enmity with each other. As I said, there are two testaments. You've got the Old and the New Testament. One is based on the law and one is based on grace. One shows fallen man and the other shows man restored. You've got day and you've got night. You've got Jesus and you've got Barabbas. You've got Jesus and you've got Adam. The Bible includes the fact that Rebecca asked for two kids of the goats because there is a contrast. There is deception, but there is also the fulfilling of God's plan. As E.W. Bullinger says about this kind of thing, one excludes all difference and denotes that which is sovereign, but two affirms that there is a difference, there is another, while one affirms that there is not another. This is what's going on here. God has made a choice in, in Jacob, but he has allowed the fulfillment of that choice through Rebekah and Jacob, who are going against his immediate will, which is do not deceive. God would not want people to lie. But in the same time, it is fulfilling his ultimate will, which is that the younger will serve, or I'm sorry, the older will ser serve the younger. If you can see how this works, then you are beginning to see the amazing work of God as his plans are being fulfilled through fallen people. Jacob's son, Joseph, I've talked about him already. He's going to stand before Pharaoh. He's going to be the second in command of uh, Egypt someday. He explains this concept exceedingly well in Genesis chapter 50. His brothers took him. They sold him off to uh, the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites took him down to Egypt. He was sold there. He was in bondage for many years. Eventually, he became the leader of Egypt, and it was through that that he brought salvation to his family from the famine, okay? Here's what Jacob or Joseph says to his brothers when they finally meet him face to face. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. And that's why these two kids of the goats are being mentioned is to show us the contrast, God's will and our free will and how they work together even though they contrast. Verse 10, then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. Once again, Rebecca uses the same term that she used before. Instead of saying before his death, meaning before his death in time, she says before his death, meaning in the face of his death. The blessing is given as a result of the fall of man. It is coming in the person of Jesus Christ to reverse that fall. And that is why she's using this term, and I am certain of this. She is a woman of faith looking forward to her Savior and the prospect of eternal life, just as so many faithful and yet misunderstood people have already shown up in Genesis, and we're going to see so many more in the pages ahead. Where we want to look for fault, we actually find faith. As I said, we saw it in Lot's daughters. We found it in Abraham. Abraham said about his wife, she's my sister. And yet he was exercising faith when he did that. And I explained how that happened because she actually was his half-sister. He wasn't under any obligation to say anything else. We'll see it in the uh, prostitute Rahab. Like I say, she's going to lie about the spies that she's hiding in order to save them. And eventually she will become an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. All of these people we see living in faith, even they're doing, they're doing things that we think are somehow wrong. And I'm going to give you an example. We see it in modern times 
in the person of Corey Ten Boom. Some of you might know who she is and some of you might not, but she was a lady that hid the Jewish people in her home during World War II. Okay, I think it was in Holland that she lived. Anyway, uh, the Germans were the occupiers there and they had a law that you had to turn in any Jews and she hid the Jews in her home. Now, what she did was against the law, but it served a more important purpose. And I will tell you how special this woman of God is to God. And if you don't believe me, you can go online and you can look at the picture that I took. I've got it there. When my mom was uh, in Israel, I went with her to Israel. We went to what's called the Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust Memorial in Israel. And outside of there, they have what's called the Garden of the Gentiles, the Garden of the Righteous Gentiles. And what they do is they take trees and they plant them in honor of people that have helped the people of Israel throughout the years. And she had a tree there. And it was planted along with all of the other trees in rows, okay? And so they're all the same size because they're all planted in order and then they keep planting them and so they get smaller as uh, they plant them because obviously the years are going by. But if you go to where her tree is, Corey Ten Boom's tree, it's real small. And all of the other trees that were planted at the same time are much bigger. And you think, why is that? And the reason why is because the day she died, her tree died. It withered up from the roots the day she died. And they had to go and plant another tree. And that is, I am absolutely certain, God showing how much he favored her actions, just as we see Rebecca here, just as we saw Lot's daughters, and just as we see Rahab the harlot, and all of these people that end up in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. He's honoring them that way. Well, he's honoring the memory of Corey Ten Boom. It's an amazing thing to see. And like I say, if you don't blame me, just go on. I've got pictures of it on my uh, Facebook page. And you can look at this teeny little tree along with all of these other trees. Do you remember that? Absolutely. It's a wonderful thing that God honors the people that honor him through faith. Verse 11. And Jacob said to, his, uh, to Re- uh, Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. This reminds us of Genesis 25, verse 25, which said, And the first, which was Esau, the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Not only was Esau born hairy, but he stayed hairy his whole life. This is an affliction that's known as hypertrichosis, and it can be so bad in some cases that it's called werewolf syndrome. And if you don't believe me with that one, go online and just type in hypertrichosis, and you'll see people that actually look just like werewolves. As twins, though, this malady surprisingly didn't affect both of them, but only Esau. But there's a reason for this. As I said in a sermon just a few weeks ago, hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things. The goat is a hairy goat, okay? It's it's an animal that's hairy, and it is used as the sin offering in the Bible. It's given as an awareness of sin, and that's why we take this hairy animal to remind us of our sins. A Nazarite, which is found in uh, Numbers chapter 6, is someone who has made a vow or is consecrated to the Lord. And during the time of that vow or of that consecration, they are never to cut their hair. Some people are Nazarites from birth. Some people made a vow and it was temporary. The hair is a reminder of the vow and of their separation to God. Esau's hair is mentioned because it's more than just a physical affliction. It is a reminder of the fallen state of man. As I said, his name Esau is basically the same word as when man was made in Genesis chapter 1. It says God made man, and the word is Esau, 
is very similar. It's spelled the same. It's just a little bit different. He is picturing Adam. Later, his name was changed to Edom, which is the same basic word as Adam. They mean the same thing. Edom means red. Red. Adam was taken out of the red clay of the earth. So he's picturing Adam in both of them. Esau and Adam and uh, what's his name? Asaw and Edom. You can see the parallels. And the reason why they called him Esau is because the word Esau means made. When he was born, it was as if he was a full man made in the womb. And once again, that pictures Adam, who was made as a full man out of the dust of the earth. So you're seeing these parallels in him. Jacob, the son of promise, is a smooth-skinned man. Their difference, the physical makeup, is a picture of their spiritual heritage. But what is interesting here is that in order to receive the blessing, Jacob will need to emulate his older hairier brother. And isn't this then a picture of Jesus Christ? The sinless son of God who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became like us so that we could become like him. All of this beautiful symbolism is right here in this story. And that's why this story is being recorded here in the first place. Verse 12, perhaps my father will feel me, feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. To me, it's kind of funny that Jacob is less concerned about the act of deceit than he is about being caught. But it shows that he had an awareness of the wrong that he was committing, even if the intentions of Rebecca were faithful ones. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 18, speaks in terms which are very similar to this. Now, I know Deuteronomy is a law and it comes later in history, but it seems he has an understanding of what the law contains. It says, cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. Now, this is a spiritual path. It's not a literal path, but it is still an intentional deceit of the blind, and he understands that a curse and not a blessing could be the result. An important consideration, though, comes from the book of Numbers, all right? And I want you to try to understand what I'm saying here. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce who the Lord has not denounced? Rebecca already knows that the blessing is going to come upon Jacob because she was told before they were born. And so she knows that no curse is going to come upon her son. She's looking into the future as a woman of faith. Once again, we see a portion of the gospel right here. Jesus took on our sin and our curse just as Jacob took on Esau's likeness. The hair, which symbolizes this awareness of sin, is given to us as that picture. But God the Father blessed Jesus just as Jacob will be blessed by his father Isaac. And that brings us to our third thought today, Jacob the deceiver. Verse 13, but his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, get them for me. I have to remind you what I said earlier. Rebecca is well over 100 years old and she has known since her pregnancy that Jacob is the son of promise. A mother will never forget this type of thing and she is so certain of the outcome that she says, let your curse be on me. As the Geneva Bible says about this particular verse, the assurance of God's decree made her bold. In the book of Luke, it says concerning the things that happened at the time of Jesus' birth that Mary uh, 
kept those things and pondered them in her heart. Rebecca has kept and pondered in her heart the oracle that was given to her over 78 years earlier, and she is determined to see that it is fulfilled. Verse 14, then he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. We cannot miss the fact here that two animals died in order to make this meal for Isaac. The blessing only comes after the meal, and the meal is the proof of the death. When we take the Lord's Supper, Paul says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Only after we take the meal is the blessing bestowed. It is an implication that he died so that we can live. This is the reason why it makes absolutely no sense in the world for a person to take the Lord's Supper if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And yet people do it in churches all the time. If you believe that he died for your sins and then was resurrected, you'd be a fool not to accept that. But if you don't believe it, then the meal has no point or purpose. Rebecca here is preparing a tasty meal for Isaac in the hopes of the resurrection and of the blessing on Jacob, which will lead to that glorious day. Verse 15, then Rebecca took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on her on Jacob, her younger son. Now there's a speculation about this verse that I wanna share with you, and I agree with it, and I will actually confirm it in next week's sermon. Rebecca, it says, put choice clothes belonging to Esau on Jacob. The term in Hebrew is ha-chamudot, meaning the precious. Some people have taken this to mean that they are special garments for ministry. Because Esau was the oldest son, he would perform the priestly blessings and functions in the house. Isaac is the patriarch of the family. He is the priest of the family, but guess what? His eyes are bad, and that means that Esau has now assumed those roles. The ancient Greek translation of this particular verse uses the term teen stolene, which is the same words that they use to describe the garments of the high priest of Israel with the word holy in Exodus chapter 28. So if this is right, and I believe 100% it is, it would explain why Rebekah had these garments instead of Esau. Esau's been married to two women for 37 years, and yet she takes special clothing of Esau and she puts them on her son. It would also explain why she put these on him to uh, receive this blessing. The blessing of the Messiah would be appropriate for one wearing priestly garments. A great picture of this, if you want to see it, is in the book of Zechariah. It's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. As a matter of fact, let me go ahead and do that. Let me take just a moment and read you those verses. wasn't sure if I wanted to do this, but I don't think we're going to be over time today. And you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. So you can see he's being given these priestly garments in order to 
uh, be a picture of the coming Messiah. And that's exactly what is going on right here, these precious glo uh, robes that are being given to him. And it would also explain the words of Isaac when he gives the blessing after his meal, which we're going to see next week. Verse 16, and she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Rebecca shows the cunningness of a lady here. She not only makes this deceiving meal and she gets out clothes to deceive as well, but she uses the hair of goats that she had just cooked. She just cooked these two goats to cover her son, Jacob. Now, this is probably what's known as a camel goat. They're in the Mideast and they're black and they have silk-like hair and they are used as a substitute for human hair. They did this all the way up through the times of the Roman Empire. It's a, uh, such a convincing type of hair that these camel goats have that we have a great parallel passage from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 19 during the life of the great King David. Here's what it says. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent the messengers to take David, she said he is sick. So she put this goat's hair there and it made it look like he was sick in bed. In the use of these two goats on Jacob, we see, and get this, this is just amazing. We see a picture of the Day of Atonement, which is recorded in Leviticus 16. He's walking in there with these, these goat skins on him. And that actually pictures what the high priest of Israel, who prefigures the work of Jesus Christ, pictures. This high priest of Israel, wearing his priestly robes, just like Jacob is wearing, came before the Lord with two goats, just as Jacob is. One is a sacrifice of atonement and one is a scapegoat to carry the sins away from the camp. Jacob is coming before his father wearing the priestly robes of the house, Esau's garments and the skins of two goats. Here he is picturing Jesus Christ as our substitute and as our high priest, and yet he is the son of promise who is going to receive the blessing. Man, the pictures are all over this account. Verse 17, then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. This is now the fifth of six times that the term savory food has been used in this chapter, and it's used only two other times in the entire Bible. And both of them are in the book of Proverbs chapter 23, and both of them have a very similar connection. Here's the first time that it's recorded in Proverbs 23. It says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. If you are a man given to appetite, do not desire his delicacies. It's the word there, delicacies. And then it goes on to say, for they are deceptive food. So you see, even in the book of Proverbs, this type of food is deceptive in its nature, just as it's deceptive for Jacob going to Esau. I can tell you personally that it took one meal, and this is the truth, she'll, she'll tell you this is true, it took one meal for my wife to make for me, for me to decide that she was the one that I was going to marry. She wasn't being deceptive, but I can guarantee you that a way to get to a man's heart is through his stomach. And apparently, the way to spiritual blessings follows the exact same path. And I got to tell you what, it was so beautiful. It was just all 
arranged. Everything was so perfectly done and little garnishes and everything. And now all I get for the past 28 years is a bowl of soup. But <laughs> not really. It was a good meal, though. And I knew that one time, that's all it took was that one meal. And I was, I was a goner. And same thing with Isaac. He's going to be a goner through one meal with his son. Verse 18. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Now, I don't want you to make the error that you think that I think that what Rebecca and Jacob have done was the right thing for them to do. Jacob lies directly by claiming to be Esau. He lies that he has done exactly what he was told to do because Esau was told to get wild game that came, you know, game that came from the wild. And instead, Jacob takes two goats, which come from Isaac's camp. So his lies are mixed with false actions. He also deceives by wearing Esau's clothing and by hiding his own hairless nature by wearing goatskins. What he has done, as prompted by his mother, is wrong. Having said that, the purposes of God came about exactly as they knew, as God knew that they would. Adam Clark, who I quoted earlier in a positive light, I'm going to now quote and I'm going to disagree with him. He cites what most commentators state about this verse. Here's what he said. It was the design of God that the elder should serve the younger. And he, God, would have brought, about, brought it about in the way of his own wise and just providence. But means such as here used, he could neither sanction nor recommend. Now, I got to tell you what, that is absolute nonsense. This is exactly how it was intended to come about from before the creation of the world. And the reason why is because this story needed to be put into the Bible to show us what he was going to do through his own son, Jesus Christ, who would come in the image of Adam. All right, God, it doesn't mean that God caused this to happen, though, but that he knew how it would transpire. So in this account, we see the amazing work of God as he works through fallen people. He told Rebecca when the children were in her womb that the older would serve the younger. That was before they were ever born. And because of this, certainly because of this, she came up with the plan which is given in the account today. And yet God is not to blame even though he's the one who led her to do these things by telling her the outcome before they actually occurred. Anyone that cannot see the free will of man and yet the divine direction of God in the Bible is absolutely nuts. God is guiding human history and every single thing that comes about is because he intends for it to come about. And yet when evil occurs, it is a part of his plans but he in no way brought it about. If you don't understand that, watch my earlier Genesis sermons, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I talk about free will and how those things come about, and yet he's not responsible for the evil. Anyone who thinks that we can do something wrong and then blame God when something happens is deluding themselves. And anyone who thinks that God is somehow unaware of every single evil thing that we have done or ever will do, is similarly deluded. We live in the presence of absolute pure holiness and greatness. Verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, How is this that you have how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God 
brought it to me. The question that Isaac asks here is obvious. Jacob sounds like Jacob and Esau sounds like Esau. His eyes may be dim, but his hearing is fine. Once again, we see God's providence in this. His providence, in fact, is all over this account. Isaac's eyes are so bad that he cannot tell which son is there. That's God's providence. But his taste buds and his hearing are fine. His taste is what prompted him to send his son out for wild meat. This would not have happened if he didn't have good taste buds. And said he would have said, just go get me some food. But the taste buds are important because God's giving Jacob time to get in there and get this blessing while Esau is out hunting, all right? His good hearing is going to allow him to know that there is something wrong. And so he's going to feel his son to prove that he is sufficient for the blessing. And this points to Jesus because Jesus was convincingly like Adam because he came as a man. Isaac's curiosity here is aroused enough to question how he found an animal so quickly. The voice and the early lunch have him wondering what's going on. All of, but of all of this deception so far, the one that Jacob uses here is the worst because he didn't just lie that he was fortunate to find an animal. He actually invokes the, names, the Lord's name. He says, the Lord your God brought it to me. So that's one thing that makes this account very sad is that he's actually invoking the name of the Lord while he's deceiving his father. But I want you to know that saying the Lord your God doesn't really imply anything here. A lot of commentators say he's trying to hide uh, from Jehovah by saying the Lord your God. Or maybe uh, some commentators say that he's implying that his brother Esau was not a believer by saying the Lord your God has nothing to do with it. The term, the Lord your God, is used 403 times in the New King James Version of the Bible. And it is used by the Lord himself. It is used by believers, and it is used by non-believers. It is a standard way of speaking, which people use even today. It's simply acknowledging that the person that is being spoken to is a believer in Jehovah. Now, this might seem like a peculiar point to stop today's sermon, but stop we will. And the reason why is because what happens from uh, verse 21 on fits very well in the next sermon. But I want you to remember a few things from what we've talked about. Despite her deceit, Rebecca was a woman of faith and she was acting in faith. Her deceit and Jacob's deceit are wrong, but it was wrong that the Lord worked out for good. And so a life lesson for each of you to consider is that all of the wrong that you have done in your life, I hope you will feel guilty about. But if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and if you've been covered by his shed blood, then he has forgiven you of those wrongs, and he has used those to bring you to where you are now. And you're going to fall again as well. There's no doubt about it. And when you do, understand that the Lord will be using that also. However, just because we do wrong and the Lord can use it does not mean that we should intentionally do wrong to help make the Lord look good. Paul warns us about that particular type of attitude in Romans chapter 3. And I want to close with that today. Let me read you what he says from Romans 3 because it fits so beautifully with what Jacob has done. Jacob has done wrong, Rebekah has done wrong, and yet God has been glorified through it. Here's what Paul says. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, I'll start with that. 
Charlie Garrett was a really crummy guy for most of his life, and I still am. But I'm just saying, before I met the Lord, I was a real you know, bad guy, and I was very unrighteous. I wasn't living for the Lord. And yet he forgave me of everything I've done. My unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God because he has shown his mercy in Charlie Garrett, okay? What shall we say, Paul asks? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And he's asking that question because if he looks good because of what I've done wrong, then how can he be just in inflicting wrath? All right, Paul says, I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? God is infinitely righteous. We're fallen. He must judge us or it violates his own righteousness. Okay? He goes on. For if, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, okay, Jacob lied, and yet God's truth is increased to God's glory through what happened. He's saying, if that's the case, why am I also still judged as a sinner? How can you say, how can you judge Jacob for lying? because you look good through what Jacob has done. That's the question. And he says here, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Well, Jacob did evil and good did come out of it. Jesus Christ came because the blessing went through Jacob, okay? He's saying, why don't we do evil that good may come? Well, why don't all of us just go and, you know, do something really perverted today? We'll just get together and do something perverted because then God will be glorified through it. That's what they're saying right here. And Paul goes on to say that people he, he was actually accused of saying this, right? He says, their condemnation is just. We do not sin in order to make God look good. When we sin and God is merciful on us and he forgives us because of what we've done, God is glorified. But we are not to use sin as license and we're not or use our salvation and our forgiveness through Jesus Christ as license. So what we see in the Bible and what we see in our own lives is used to God's glory, but we're not to abuse that. Does everybody understand that? That's my lesson for you today. All right. Now, if you've never understood personally, anybody here that has never understood personally the magnitude of your sins before God, I want to explain to you how you can have them forgiven and cleansed. And maybe everybody here has called on Jesus, but if you haven't, just give me two minutes to explain Jesus coming. And I'm going to use today's sermon as an example because it says that Jacob took on the nature of Esau in order to receive the blessing. Jesus Christ came as a man to undo what the first man did. The first man sinned against God and it caused a rift between God and man. And it is an eternal rift. And the reason why is because we are in time and we're going this way. Adam cannot go back before the sin and undo it. And we are in Adam and therefore we cannot go back before Adam's sin and undo it. Jesus says that we are condemned already because of what Adam did. We're already separated from God and we are already on the highway to hell. What we need is to move from that highway to the highway of heaven. And the way we do that is by putting our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ who came just as a man. He was convincingly like a man because he was a man, just as Jacob was convincingly like Esau. And so the blessing was given to Jacob because of the convincing nature of what occurred, the blessing is given to Jesus Christ because he prevailed over Adam. He never sinned where Adam did sin. And he also didn't inherit Adam's sin because sin comes through the father. It doesn't come through the mother. Jesus has only one father. It's God the father. He was conceived in a virgin's womb. So he did not inherit Adam's sin. And so what we can do is by faith, we can put our trust 
in Jesus Christ and we move from fallen Adam to the risen Christ and our sins can never be judged again. It is done. Yes, we're going to sin again, but those sins are already figured into God's plans. Having said that, let's not use those sins as license to sin more, okay? But that is why Jesus Christ came and the way that you fix the problem, the way that you move from Adam to Jesus is by simple faith. Lord Jesus, I have sinned and I want to be forgiven and I want to move to you. You are my Lord. I accept your payment for what I have done and God will forgive you forever. That is the good news that we're looking at in all of these Old Testament pictures and that is the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. All right, I have a closing verse for, for you today from uh, 2 Timothy, and the reason why I chose this is because it's very similar to what originally occurred with Jacob and uh, Isaac. It says here, this is Paul writing to Timothy and giving him instructions about uh, holy living and what's gonna happen with people in the world. It says here, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Well, Jacob was deceiving and Isaac was deceived. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And the reason why this is a particularly important verse for you to consider is that when he wrote this, there was no New Testament. Paul and the other apostles were in the process of writing the New Testament. The holy scriptures that he is writing about here are the Old Testament. And all of these pictures that we are looking at in the Old and all of the things that happened to Moses and to the Israelites and the prophets and all of these things are what make us wise to understand why we need Jesus. So if people don't understand the need for the Old Testament, they are missing out on all of the beauty of what God has done in human history as it leads to Jesus. And now we can look at the words of these apostles looking back on Jesus and say, now I have a full picture of this great God who sent his son for you and me. All right, next week we're gonna look at Genesis 27, verses 21 through 29. Nine short verses. It's called the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. And we have one more thing as I do every week before we take our communion. This is a poem based on the verses that we've looked at today. It's called, In the Face of Death Comes a Blessing. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim he couldn't see that he called Esau his older son and so he told. Yes, he said to him, my son, please hear me. And he answered him, here I am. Are you in need? Are you in a jam? Then he said, behold, I am old. I know not my death's day. Now then, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go to the field and hunt game for me, do as I say, and make savory food such as I love. I like it tasty, you know. Bring it to me that I may eat. Yes, be a good guy, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, her son, and her heart was glad. And Esau went to the field. He was no slow poke. He went to hunt game and to bring it to his dad. So Rebekah said to Jacob, her son, quietly, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you. For this I am praying. I will bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now you have my word. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice in what I command. Go now to the flock and bring me the things that I demand. Two choice kids of the goats are what I need. Go, and I will make savory food for your father with speed. I will make them for your father, these nummy nums. 
then you shall take it to your father that he may eat and that he may bless you before his death comes and upon you will be the Lord's blessing so sweet. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother is a hairy man. I am smooth. We don't resemble one another. Perhaps my father will see through this plan. And if he feels me, I shall seem a deceiver to him and I shall bring a curse down upon myself. The chances of blessing would be rather slim. This could turn out bad like rotten cheese on a shelf. But his mother said, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me so that we can be done. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother and she made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took choice clothes of her elder, Esau, his brother, which were in her house and put them on Jacob, her beloved. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and also on the smooth part of his neck too. Then she gave the savory food and the bread, all part of her plans, which she had prepared into Jacob's hands. It's true. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said, I am Esau, your firstborn. I hope it's not a bother. Just as you have told me, so I have done. Please arise, sit and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me just the same. But Isaac said, how is it that you found it so quickly? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. This story has a moral and a purpose for us. And although it contains intrigue and lies, ultimately through what happened came Jesus. And understanding what happened will make us wise. Every word of God is glorious and pure and will establish for us a foundation so sure. And so let us carefully consider the story and reflect on how God shows us, how it shows us God's glory. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story of these two boys that are struggling in the womb and struggling throughout life and uh, how you chose one to serve the other in your divine foreknowledge of how things would turn out so that we have these beautiful pictures of Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you for revealing these things to us and helping us to see the glory of what you have done. And Lord, I pray that each person here will uh, be safe in the day ahead and in the week ahead and that you'll just uh, fill them with joy in their hearts and fill them with good food on their table and uh, families that are not fighting with each other but that are, are responsive to each other and helping each other with their needs. And if there's any physical affliction in any of these people or their families or the ones that they love, please look after them and help them to uh, uh, you know, get well and to uh, just re be restored to health. But if you uh, should choose for us to uh, be called home this week, may we at least have the peace that we are reconciled to you and that we are living for you as we should when that moment occurs. Whatever happens, you're in control and we just entrust our uh, lives and our souls to your good care. And we know that you will lead us to the right place where we belong in the sight of Jesus and at his glorious feet. Lord, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for us. What a great and wonderful Savior. Just praise you in his name. Amen.